citizens, both individually and collectively, as the people of God, as communities, um, where things are just, they're just off. Seasons where life is tough, seasons where things seem to be dark. We've been in one quite a while now, um, as this pandemic that you can't go a day without hearing something about, uh, without seeing something that's been rearranged because of COVID, um, continues to to track in our systems. Our brains are absorbing all of this. Uh, and you find anxiety levels higher, depression levels higher, uncertainty. Uh, I know many of you have had family, have had friends who have been sick with COVID-19. My parents are just beginning to recover after about a 14-day battle where they were the sickest that they have ever, ever been. Uh, my dad spent uh, about six days in the hospital um, trying to get stabilized from COVID-19. And we're in an election time, and yesterday was Halloween with a full moon, right? It's just a strange time. We told our kids Halloween had been canceled because of COVID-19. And they thought that's true, and they saw, until they saw children out walking around. What's happening? We just said those are disobedient children, right? So they'll be arrested soon. Um, this morning, I came in at my normal time. I usually get here pretty early on Sundays, and I came in uh, proud of myself for not letting time change, uh, time change mess with my discipline in my world. I uh, opened the, the staff hall, the back door, came in like a, like a king, and set the alarm off immediately when I came in. Then it dawned on me, I do have some emails and texts from the appropriate ones of you uh, telling me what to do in that situation, but there was no time. Uh, so I texted the staff and said, I just set the alarm off and I don't exactly know what to do. So I turned it off and then uh, got an opportunity to visit with an officer a few minutes later. And I don't come in in my grown-up clothes, right? I come in comfortable and I change. Um, so to make it worse, I, I had to answer the front door um, and, and go out and speak with an officer wearing my T-shirt that says, I'm just here to establish an alibi. True story. Huh. True story. She said, do you work here? I said, believe it or not, I'm the senior pastor. Um, she said, uh-huh. Uh, she said, do you have ID or, or a key that can get you in? I said, I do. I have, I have both. And, and I, I went to uh, tap my key card on the little element outside this door. And she said, don't worry about that. That door's already open. And I said, What? <laughs> you know, so we had one door that was ready to go already. And so, so she said, you want to try that door? I said, yes. And uh, so I tapped the staff hall front door. It let me in. I said, you need to see my ID? And she said, no. She said, I doubt if you were a burglar, you would have come to the door. <laughs> I said, well, never overestimate the intelligence of burglars, right? So that's my morning. Maybe yours has been something like that. If it hasn't, we have those mornings. We have them individually. We have them as the people of God. What we find in Judges is a dark season, a dark period. We often find that great acts of faith and obedience by the people of God are followed by great periods of an unwillingness to exercise faith and disobedience. And tell me you haven't had an experience like that in your life where you had some kind of high with the Lord that lasted for a while 
And you went through a seasons of I'll never and I will always. And you're making new commitments and the fire of God's Spirit is burning in your heart. And then it begins to fade. And you find yourself sometimes falling back into some old habits and old patterns. Well, the book of Judges chronicles this dark season between the leadership of Joshua and the establishment of a king in the life of Israel, which God warned them against, but they continued to plead for and ask for anyway. And during this season of of trying to live in the promised land, the land of Canaan, they continued to reap some of the results of their disobedience. They came in under Joshua's leadership, and they failed to clear out the people to the degree that God had commanded them to do so. And some of them intermarried, and there was issues with religious and, and synchronicity happening there where they were picking from this religion and that religion and kind of mixing it up together. And the only real highlight, the, the only real light in the book of Judges, which begins fairly dark and spirals down and ends pretty dark, is a judge by the name of Deborah. Is a judge by the name of Deborah. We're going to pick this up in chapter 4, verse 1. And I'll just tell you a little bit about the judges because we have a a legal background for that term here. When we see judge, we think of someone in a robe at a bench making legal decisions. That's not so much of what you need to be thinking about as you think about the judges in the book of Judges. They certainly would settle disputes between uh, people at times. But more often, they were prophets and leaders during this time. And often they were not very good ones. They were not very good ones. Let's look at chapter 4 beginning with verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 5 starting out. And here's what I want you to be thinking about before I start. I want you to be looking at how God moves as we see chapter 4 of Judges unfolding. We've watched God move in creation through the fall, the covering of Adam and Eve in grace even though they had to live out the implications and consequences of their sin. We've watched God move in Abraham, establishing a covenant, delivering his covenant people from slavery in Egypt through Moses. We've watched him care for them in the desert. We've seen him move through the leadership of Joshua, and they crossed the river into Canaan last week. But we haven't systematically looked at things that tend to be consistently present in how God moves. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Look at verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's a sad statement. It's a sad statement. It means that they were already developing this pattern of unfaithfulness, this pattern of disobedience early in their life in the promised land. Now that Ehud was dead, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Haggaiim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, which the Israelites didn't have that technology yet for warfare, and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. You hear the, the echo of their life in Egypt? crying out to the Lord for help as they are oppressed and in slavery in a foreign land. Verse 4, verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, 
the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel or judging Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the high country or hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went to her to have their disputes settled. Let me just tell you this. The, the first thing that we see here, and you'll see it start to unfold right after this, about how God moves is that he moves through our prayers. He moves in response to our prayers. We saw it in Egypt. We saw it throughout their journey in the wilderness as God's people, even sometimes as they grumbled to Moses. Moses would take that grumbling and he would translate it into prayer before God. And God would move. God moves in response to our prayer. He moves in response to the prayers of his people. And there may be some things in your life where you're not seeing breakthroughs simply because you are not faithfully pleading with God about that. Now, I want to be careful. I said there may be some areas in your life where you're not seeing the kind of movement of God that you desire because you're not faithfully, consistently coming to him in prayer. It is true that God moves in response to our prayers. It is also true that my prayer obligates God to nothing. All right? So I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that simply because you pray for something and pray for it passionately and earnestly and consistently, God's going to grant that. God's going to answer your prayer as you would if you saw all that God sees. And you know all that God knows. But the people cry out. And we find if you look back at verses 1 and 2 carefully, they're crying out for help from God because they're in a situation that God placed them in in response to their disobedience. And it's amazing throughout the Old Testament how everyone we see, every kingdom, every ruler is simply a bit player in God's great redemptive narrative. Again, they're unfaithful. Again, they're disobedient. And God says, that's all right. He raises up a Canaanite king and military leader that exercises some dominion, some dominion over them. For a couple of decades and they cry out to God have you ever noticed that pain can be a fantastic teacher pain can be a fantastic teacher there are just some things in our lives that we are unwilling to lay before God until the pain of keeping it or holding on to it gets greater than the pain of releasing it God moves in response to our prayers this is how it's always been. Some of you will know the name of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was uh, a YMCA worker and preacher in the early days of the YMCA in the United States. Um, and in 1871, the great fire of Chicago swept through that city and burned so much of it down, including the church that D.L. Moody preached at and much of the places, many of the places where he worked. So he goes to England, to London specifically, in 1872, and he just wants to rest, and he wants to experience renewal. And he tells himself he had already gained a reputation for being a dynamic preacher. God moved on behalf of, of D.L. Moody when he preached, and God did great things. But he went to England to rest. He went to London not to preach, and he told himself he just wants to sit there and to learn from some of the great British preachers of his day and not preach. But he couldn't. 
a local pastor in kind of a lower uh, middle income church, not too far from a prison in London, got after him and said, hey, Moody, come preach for me. Come preach for me. He said, no, I'm just here to rest. I'm here to come preach for me. And finally, Moody accepted. He said, okay, okay, I'll preach for you. He got up on a Sunday morning and he journals this. And he says, ah, I got up on, on Sunday morning on a dreary London morning. Some of you that have been to London can testify they have some dreary days. So he got up and he had none of the energy that he knew it required to preach. He had none of the fire in him. And he immediately regretted agreeing to preach. But he went and he preached and the people were as lethargic as he was, right? It was a gloomy day, not just for him, but for them. They were barely awake. None of them really wanted to be there. It was just an off morning. Moody left discouraged, went back to his lodging place. But uh, a young woman who was there ran home after hearing D.L. Moody to tell her young bedridden sister that D.L. Moody had come there and he preached that morning. The young woman's name was Marianne Algard. And the little bedridden sister said, God, you know what this means? This means God has answered my prayer. And her older sister said, what are you talking about? And she said, I read a couple of years ago about D.L. Moody. I've been reading about him, and I started praying, and I've been praying for months for his ministry, and then specifically that God would somehow send him to our church to preach. And he was there. And she was so excited, Marianne Allard, that she didn't even eat lunch. She fasted and said, we have to pray. And her sister joined her. And they prayed all afternoon. And as was common in the day and was common for so long in churches, Moody went back that evening to preach, expecting about the same. But that night, there was an electricity, a power, a passion in his preaching. It was very clear to him that God had gotten a hold of him and was moving. And at the end, he gave an invitation. And scores of people across the room stood up to accept Christ as their Savior. It so unsettled him, he went back and sat down while they sang a little bit and then came back out and said, I must not have been clear. <laughs> Maybe you misunderstood what you were standing up for. It's not a potluck. So he explained again the gospel and what it meant to become a Christian. And they stood again. And those two girls kept praying. And that pastor asked Dale Moody to keep coming back. And at the end of 10 days, over 400 people had given their lives to Christ and become a member of that church in London. Moody was so shaken by this, he was quite aware that it was not him. It was not his human skill, ability, or preparation that he began to do some investigation and was led to the bedside of this young woman named Marianne, and they talked. And she let him know that she'd been praying for him for months and months and months. And she'd been praying specifically that God would send him to her church. And he did. 1872 and 1934, not too far from here, Charlotte, North Carolina, a group of of businessmen, of godly businessmen, had been gathering at farms and in fields praying that revival would come to their city, to their county, to their community. And they'd been praying specifically that God would raise someone up from there 
And some of you know where I'm headed here. They would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They've been praying God would send someone to preach, and Mordecai Ham, a southern revivalist, came. And in October and November, he preached day in and day out, night after night, in one of those big old tents. And one of those businessmen who'd been gathering and getting on his knees in a field underneath the North Carolina sky with other businessmen for months was a man named Frank Graham. And on November 1st of 1934, his nearly 16-year-old son, Billy Graham, was at one of those revival meetings and gave his life to Jesus Christ. And God used Billy Graham in a way that he saw fit to use no one else in the 20th century. Billy Graham's dad was a dairy farmer. Graham later in his ministry said, this, a mystery and wonder of prayer is that God often waits until someone asks. John Wesley, the great traveling preacher that became the catalyst for the Methodist church, said this, and some of you will have heard this, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergy or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. God does nothing but an answer to prayer. I remember reading that as a young man called to preach, having no idea what this would mean for my life, knowing I would have chosen a whole host of other things, but that God had called clearly, and he had commissioned me to do this. And that statement of Wesley's wrapped itself around me and reminded me that there's no place for fear in preaching or in the life of those who are followers of Jesus. C.H. Spurgeon, the great 19th century British preacher, said that whenever God determines to do a great work, he first sets his people to prayer. He first sets his people to prayer. And I want to thank those of you in here who are praying faithfully for me and for our church right now. I want to thank so many of you who are at home now, homebound, who are so encouraging to me and remind me regularly of your prayer for me and your prayer for our church. Praying is not the least we can do, folks. It is often the most that we can do. It's far easier to find people who will come up and move this table to here or trim this bush or bake this cake. It is far harder to find men and women who wear out the knees of their pants in prayer. Can you imagine what if prayer was a first response and not a last resort? How different our lives might be, how different our churches might be, how different the direction even of our nation might be. They cried out to the Lord for help, and God answered them through Deborah. But when God moves, he not only moves in response to the prayers of his people, he also moves through our actions. He moves through our actions. Look at Deborah's response in verse 6. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. Now, 
If I'm called from the leader of the nation, the prophet, the one who speaks for God, if I'm called into the inner chamber, um, I'm going to be excited about that. I'll be like, I've been chosen, y'all. I'll see you when I get back. And then she says, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. There's a military campaign to be waged. And you're the guy to do it. You're the guy to lead it. God continued to speak through Deborah in verse 7 says, I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Now question, and we ask this week by week, who's at work here? You people scare me sometimes. Who's at work here? God, that's right, it's God or Jesus, right, pick one. Yeah, God's at work here. He's at work in response to the prayers of his people. But he is at work through their action too. It's not enough just to pray. We've got to be willing to pray and then get up and step forward into the kingdom work that God has called us to and God has laid before us. God speaks through Deborah. He calls Barak to this task. Deborah lays it out for him. And in verse 8, Barak says to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, there's mystery here, and there's mystery here I can't unpack for you. Old Testament scholars disagree on this, but there's something going on here. On the surface, verse 8, it looks like Barak is a little cowardly. His response to this military commission was, Hey, Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go. If you don't go with me, I'm not going. I don't think it's that. I think it's that for this time in the history of the people of God, the judges, the prophets that spoke for God, however good or bad they were, represented God to the people. And Deborah had been a faithful judge. As I said, she's the single light in the book of Judges. And I think, I can't be certain because Scripture doesn't tell us, but I think Barak's concern is that God go with him. And that if Deborah, as God's spokesperson, goes with him, Barak says, I'll have success. I'll be able to do what God has called me to do. But there's something else going on, and I don't know what it is. Because for some reason, Deborah says, there's something about the way that you're going at this, Barak, that's going to cause the Lord still to deliver Sisera, but into the hands of a woman instead of your hands. And if you're a reader of this narrative right now, you're thinking, okay, God's going to deliver Sisera into Deborah's hands. But he doesn't. But don't miss that God is calling them to act. And God calls us as his people to act. To be engaged in his mission's work. To be engaged in kingdom work. When the people cried out from Egypt, God heard and God moved. And he moved by calling Moses and sending Moses and Aaron to lead them out. The people had to do things at the end. If you follow the plagues and that great night of judgment, they had to gather up 
resources to take out of Egypt with them. It was in response to their prayer, and it was through their actions. I, I want to ask you this morning, and I hope that you'll be reflective around this question. How are your actions right now advancing God's kingdom? I mean, we got an election coming up? Sure. We're in the middle of a pandemic? Sure. But God's kingdom moves on. God is still at work. God is not surprised by any of this. Nothing slapped him on his throne and caused him to get dizzy. We're still his people. How are your actions advancing God's kingdom right now? What are you doing to not only pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but to be a kingdom bringer to the people that live on your street, to the people that work at the shops, and the restaurants that you frequent, to the people you work with. God has placed you there to be a light, to be a kingdom bringer. He does it in response to our prayers, but he moves through our actions. It's always this combination of God and his people. They're never the same, right? Our actions always exist underneath the umbrella of God's sovereign power and goodness. But he doesn't do it without his people. He's chosen in his sovereign will to use us, to use you, to use the very things sometimes that you're most hesitant to talk about or you're most ashamed of. He wants to redeem that, to replace that darkness with light, that sorrow with joy, and make you a blessing to those around you who need someone to sit across the table from them at lunch or breakfast or at coffee and say, been where you've been and I can tell you this about my God he is faithful one last thing this morning he doesn't just move in response to your prayer or through your actions but he moves with you and ahead of you when you are on mission with him he moves with you and ahead of you when you're on mission with him the, the, the battle between Barak and Sisera gets a little messy. It's not a clean victory like we would imagine it would be. But God goes with him and goes ahead. Look at verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? I, I would ask you that, that question this morning because I'll promise you there are places in your life where you're a little afraid to move. You're afraid to step into the river. But the voice of God, if you could hear it, would say, Go, I've already gone ahead of you. Take a step in faith. Follow me. I'm already there. So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera. Who routed Sisera, Barak or the Lord? The Lord. The Lord. The Lord fights for his people. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. 
And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. I like it. It's a humiliating picture of this great general with all his chariots and his iron technology. And the people of God, because God goes before them, routes this general whose army has exercised dominance over the Israelites for 20 years because he only exercised that dominance at God's allowance. And when God decided it was done, it was done. And Sisera is routed, and he jumps off his chariot, drops a sandal, cell phone, falls out of his pocket, and he flees. Maybe he texts his wife first and says, won't be home for dinner. He flees, he runs. Barak stays after the military, but Sisera runs to an area where he has an alliance with another group, another people against Israel, and he thinks he's safe there, and he comes to the tent, to the dwelling of Heber, a Kenite, and Heber's wife encounters him there. Look at verse 18, her name is Jael. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. Men. All right? Exercise caution. If a woman calls you my lord, back it up. Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Now, a couple of years ago, I was preaching and and was going to do a little background uh, commenting on the use of the term Lord, how it was very common in Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament days in antiquity and even uh, the ancient Near East in the first century for uh, a wife to refer to her husband as Lord. So I said to Sharon, if you want to, it's okay if you refer to me as Lord. And she smiled and said, that will never happen. So I told her master was appropriate too. That has also never happened. Times they change, right? So she welcomes him in, breaking all kinds of cultural norms, right? But she says, come in, my Lord. He's fearful. He doesn't care. He comes in. She covers him with a blanket. Verse 19, I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Now, this is interesting. We don't know why she gives him milk instead of water. Maybe she didn't have water right then. But Old Testament scholars say we wouldn't put it past her uh, to know the kind of soothing effects that milk would have on a guy that's already tired. But she gives him some milk. He drinks. He lays back down. Verse 20. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. There's a little playfulness here in the Hebrew that doesn't translate in English as well. Uh, because this guy was a somebody and now he's a nobody. Is somebody in there? No, nobody's in here. Cicero doesn't matter now. He was the big cojona just a little while ago. Then he threw everything down and ran. He thinks he's got protection. But if you know anything about tribalism, and many Americans have, heard, uh, have learned a whole lot about it in the last 20 years, tribes don't often get along regardless of the treaties they make with one another, especially when there's an opportunity for power. Verse 21, 
But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg. Like at this point you think whatever's coming, it's not going to go well for Sisera. And a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. She nailed him to the ground, literally. Nailed him to the ground. Let me pause before I read 23 and 24. There's a mystery to why God works the way he works. God saw fit to deliver Sisera and the enemies of Israel into the hands of a woman instead of a man, which is odd in that day, but not just a woman, but a woman who wasn't an Israelite, but an enemy of Israel. There's a mystery to how God works. But I can tell you this, He is at work for His glory and your good in every circumstance in your life in far more ways than you are aware through the stress and the pain, the joy and the victories, God is at work in it all for your good, shaping you in the character and into the character of His Son. And Romans 8 tells us that unlike these cycles of obedience and disobedience, judgment and favor, judgment and favor, we may have some cycles of obedience and disobedience in our lives. We most certainly will. But there is now, in light of the crucifixion of Christ, no condemnation, no condemnation left for you who are in Christ. God has poured it out on Jesus on the cross. It doesn't mean there's not some learning, there's not some training, but there's no condemnation. And we see this act of God moving with his people and ahead of his people over and over and over again when they are engaging his mission and following him in obedience. And the same God that was faithful to them is the same God that is faithful to us today. And this is where our confidence lies. Not in ourselves, but in our God who is faithful. This is why we do not submit to fear. And I'll tell you this, if you get fired up for God, if God ignites your soul with a passion for Him, there will be plenty of people and circumstances around you trying to extinguish it. Some of them will be in your own church. Some of them will be outside the church. But you press in nonetheless without fear because God makes a way over and over again where none seems possible. Maybe you have, to bring it down to a personal level, maybe you have something going on in your life right now where no way forward seems possible to you. Friends, this is where God shines. God is the way maker. If he can submit to death on a cross and walk out of the grave three days later, you think there's not an issue in your life he can't handle? You think there's an issue in the life of of any of his people, of any church of his that he can't handle. He can 
and he will. Old Testament scholar Daniel Block says this about this, this bizarre incident with Jael. He says, just because the author of Judges records her deeds does not mean he approves of them. It simply adds to the mystery of divine providence, demonstrating implicitly what the following verses explicitly affirm. God is able to incorporate the free actions of human beings into his plan for his own glory and the salvation of his people. That's good news for us. Let's finish with verses 23 and 24. A kind of summary from the author of Judges. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. It's God at work, right? It's God on the move. And yet, verse 24, And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. It's God and his people. It's God and us. God leading the way. God providing the power. God calling the shots. He is the hero. But it is ours to walk in submission. Allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us. One Old Testament scholar said this about verses 23 and 24. He said that they remind the reader that the conflict in the book of Judges is not between primarily patriarchy and egalitarianism between men and women, or even between Israelite leaders and the rulers of the nations. The conflict is between the divine king and the kingdom of light on one hand and the forces of the kingdom of darkness on the other. This is ultimately a story about God, who is the real hero. God is the hero of the book of Judges. He's the hero of the Bible. He's the hero of the entire story of human history, of your life and of mine. And my challenge to you this morning is very simple. As we prepare to stand, let's go ahead and stand, and we prepare uh, to respond, to reflect through worship. Will you pray that God will bring revival to your own heart and to this church? Will you pray that God will bring revival to your heart? I mean, how many of us could say, I need that? I need a God-brought revival to renew the joy of his salvation in my heart, to create or recreate in me a pure heart and a focused spirit on him and bring revival in this church. Friends, revival is not something you calendar. It's something God creates. And time and time again, he brings it in response to the prayers of his people. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful that you're never hemmed in. God, you never turn down a one way, the wrong way. God, you're never limited. There are no boundaries put around you. God, you move however you choose, whenever you choose, through whomever you choose. God, you are sovereign and you are good. And I pray throughout this room this morning and for those watching online, that you would bring revival in our lives. God, bring revival to our homes. Bring revival to this church. God, that is my plea. That is my prayer. Be our way maker. When we don't see a way, 
Stir in us, Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.